It was built in the 6th century BC, um, excavated in the early 1900s, um, and then it was actually transported and put back together in um, the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. Um, it was the front gate to Babylon. What happened to the projector? <laughs> there it is. That's, the, uh, that's called the Ishtar Gate. This was the, the main entrance uh, into the city of Babylon. It was, it was built to impress. It was built to dazzle. It was, it was built to, to, for the individuals, the countries, the empires that um, Nebuchadnezzar would conquer and then bring people back to Babylon. This was the first thing that they would see as they walked into the city. And you can go on YouTube later today, and you can see flyovers of, of artist reconstructions of what um, the rest of that thing looks like. Um, but I found one picture that kind of helps us get a little bit of a better idea uh, of what it looked like um, back in the 6th century BC. So it's just this massive, um, awe-inspiring gate. It wasn't, it wasn't built just to keep people out. It was built to say the people behind this gate have money and power and riches and are way bigger than you. So this is the, this is the front gate of, of Babylon, um, but that wasn't the only thing that Nebuchadnezzar built. Um, Nebuchadnezzar built something else, and it wasn't just built to impress or inspire or, or create a sense of awe. Um, it was built to intimidate. He built a, a 90-foot statue plated in gold. It wasn't pure gold probably inside, uh, you know, bracing, had, had wood, and then it was plated with gold on the plain of Dura. You could have seen this thing from miles away on a sunny day as the sun just reflected off of the gold. But, but this wasn't, again, this wasn't built to impress. This wasn't built to say, look at all of our money. This was built to intimidate. This was built to say, bow your knee or else. Bow your knee or else. It wasn't just eye candy. He commands his treasurers, his governors, his advisors, his entire administration from all over the empire to the statue. And when the band started to play, everybody was to hit their knee. Everybody was to bow and worship the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, which isn't a huge deal unless you're a young man from Israel, assimilated into Babylonian culture, forced to work in a Babylonian government that you didn't necessarily support, given Babylonian names, and then you're presented with a, with, with a choice. You're, you're presented with an opportunity to make a choice. Do I bow or do I not bow? Do I bow or do I not bow? The story we're looking at today, um, it's an old story. Old, old, old story. Um, in and, and it, it's from a culture, a different time, a different place. But I want, I want to read you part of this story. And I want you to, to, many of you have heard this story since you were little kids, okay? Um, I don't want you to listen to the facts of the story, though. In fact, I'm not going to put the verses up on the screen. I don't even want you to pull out your Bible yet. Put away your Bible, put away your mobile device. You'll get that out in a second. I want you to hear the story. I want you to listen to the feel and the flow of the story. Parents who read to your kids, I want you to hear this story, just like your kids hear stories that, read, that you read to them, okay? So Nebuchadnezzar builds this statue. He then summoned 
the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So as you hear it, does it remind you of anything? The cadence, the rhythm, the repetition. This is what it reminds me of. Green eggs and ham, right? The horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all. It feels Susian to me. Okay? Like, do you like green eggs and ham? Do you like them with a mouse? Do you like them in a house? I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them in the house. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them. Yeah, see? Yes. Yes, your pastor just compared the Holy Scriptures to green eggs and ham. Okay, but here's what they have in common. Here's what they have in common. Daniel 3 and Dr. Seuss isn't made to be read. It's made to be heard. It was written to be heard. It was written to be told to your children and they to their children and they to their children. It was written to be memorized. It was the, the, the cadence, the rhythm the repetition, the big words, all of this was told. So they would tell their children and then they would tell their children and their children and their children. So this would be Velcro to their soul. Sometimes faithfulness will cost you something. Sometimes faithfulness costs something. It's this intergenerational story and, and even the very construction of it it just made for phenomenal storytelling. It's, it's one of the reasons you tell this story to your kids. It's one of the reasons I've heard this story since I was about knee high to a grasshopper. It, it just, it sticks in your soul. And it's the story. The point, the whole point of the story. Sometimes faithfulness will cost you something. Um, you may have stories like that in your family. You may have stories like that from your life. Um, my grandma told me a story. When I was about 17 or 18, about a time that they were audited by the IRS. And um, my grandpa owned a construction business and he built houses and managed property. And um, I, I, my whole life, but, but this particular instance happened before I was even born. And I don't remember all the details of the story. I actually had to call my mom this week and just say, this is what grandma told me. Does this sound like something that she would have said? And she said, yeah. Um, but she, she told me about this, the, the feelings she had 
about someone coming into their house and, and going through their books, and it just felt like, you know, their, the, the, the U.S. government was invading her privacy, right? And she tells me this story, and she just gets more and more agitated the longer she tells the story. And then she, she's, and you got to know, like my grandma Mueller was, she didn't get agitated. She was happy-go-lucky. So, so for her to get agitated just telling the story tell, told me something. And so towards the end of the story, she just pauses. And I didn't know it at the time, but she paused for a dramatic effect. <laughs> she was trying to teach me something. And, and very calmly, very clear-headed, matter-of-fact, she said, Tim, as the audit went on day after day after day, I realized I wasn't mad because I was being audited. I was mad that I was being audited by a black woman. And I had to repent. And so she told me, she walked into her, her very, very personal space, their home office, and she looked at this IRS agent and she apologized for her prejudice. She apologized, she repented, she asked for forgiveness. And, and I guarantee you that IRS agent's eyes were as big as some of yours right now. That story stuck with me. I heard it one time when I was 17 or 18. And part of the reason I think it stuck with me is because I viewed my grandma as someone who is faithful. But she was telling me about a story about sometimes faithfulness costs something. Sometimes it costs you time. Sometimes it costs you money. Sometimes it costs you pride. Sometimes it costs you to walk into an office that you own and seek forgiveness for something you have done. Sometimes faithfulness, following Jesus, will eventually come with a cost. And, and it, it always comes down to a decision. A moment, a season, when you're presented with a decision. These three young Hebrew boys standing there that day weren't raised in Babylon. They'd been stolen. They'd been put into exile in Babylon. They're from Israel, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're standing there, and they're going, are you going to bow? Are you going to bow? I'm not bowing. Are you bowing? I'm not bowing which is a whole other story, but, but costly faithfulness is always easier when you're in a group. It's much harder to pay the price when you're isolated. But they, they're, they're, okay, you gonna bow? I'm not bowing. You bowing? No. Word gets back to Neb. You know, do you not command at the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, that everyone should bow to the ground, and if they don't, they should immediately be thrown into a fire. Oh, great and mighty king, Three young Jewish boys refuse to bow to the image that you have set up. They're a part of your administration, and they're not bowing to your gods, refuse to bow to the statue you have made. And, and at that point, Nebuchadnezzar goes, yeah, those Jews can be like that. They've got their regulations and laws and besides, they're doing a pretty good job in my administration. I mean, Daniel, just last chapter, interpreted a dream for me. So we want to let him go this time. Is that what your Bible says? Okay, just checking. Here's what my Bible says. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, 
Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Here's here's where the story turns. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? The rest of the story is going to answer that question. But does anybody else notice that Neb has a little bit of short-term memory loss? Didn't we just deal with this in the last chapter? Yeah. Here's their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Here's here's just a summary of what they just said. We believe our God can. We're actually expecting that he will. But even if he doesn't, we still trust him. We believe he can. We're expecting that he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. We'd rather be in the flames with him than in the palace with you. Okay. Why? You ever asked that question? Like, what caused these three young men to go, yeah, we're not bowing? Like, what was it in them? What what was driving them to, to make that decision? And I think it was the very basis of the agreement that their people had with God. We call it a covenant. A binding agreement. And we, part, we find part of that covenant, or that covenant, that binding agreement in the Ten Commandments. And the very first one, which is usually the most important, the very first one, no other gods. No other gods. They, he wanted to be their one and only. He didn't want them to be one of the many Egyptian or Canaanite or a Babylonian gods. He wanted to be their one and only. So he says from the very beginning, no other gods, no other gods, no other gods. And, and just a cursory reading of the Old Testament, how'd they do with that one? Not great. Not great. Time and time and time again, from generation to generation, they're worshiping other gods. They're bowing down to other, I I mean, it's their downfall. Think about this. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing there going, we're not bowing, you have to understand that is the opposite of what their fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and great-great-grandfathers did. It was, it was the idol worship of their ancestors that put them in exile. God said, stop it, quit it, cut it out, or else, and they're on the other side of or else. They're paying the price for their fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and great-great-grandfathers, and they say, we know where this leads because we're here. It's what has caused us to be in exile to begin with. So no, we're not bowing. Throw us in the flames if you want. But we're not doing it. And and in some respects, it was much harder for them than it is for us. 
I mean, there aren't many of us that have to, have to make a choice between faithfulness to God and a, a fiery death. But in other respects, it's harder for us than it was for them because at least they knew when they were bowing down to an idol and worshiping it. For, for, for most of us, I think most of the time, we're largely unaware that we ha- even have an idol in our life that we've allowed to take the place of God. It, it's tempting for people who do what I do to ask the question, is there an idol in your life? That's a terrible question. It's a terrible question because the human heart is an idol factory. I, I, I just assume we all have them. The better question is, can you identify the idols that compete for your worship? Can you identify those? There's a great book about this, really helpful, Tim Keller, called Counterfeit Gods. I've, I've referenced this before. Um, subtitle is The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the whole, Only Hope That Matters. You should get this book. You should read this book. It is a great book, and I hate it. I absolutely hate this book, Okay. I hate it, it because of the way it exposes me. Like I read it and I just feel completely exposed. But in, in, in the book, his definition of an idol is anything that we look at and we go, if I have that, then my life has meaning. Then I'll have value. Then I'll feel significant. If, if I can just have that, and the crazy thing is, that could be anything. It could be anyone And whatever you think, if if I only had that, then my life would have meaning. Then my life would have value and significance. In fact, if I don't have it, if I don't have them, life is just incomplete. Whatever you fill in the blank, that's an idol. And as you answer those questions, as you think about that in your own life, you're, you're identifying idols. And this isn't a complete list, so, so don't view it as a complete list. I would call these the usual sus- suspects, okay? So, number one, a position. A position can be an idol. And a position can be anywhere from making partner at the law firm to making starter in volleyball. Because if I don't make partner, then what was the point? And if, if I'm on the bench, I have no value. But if I'm a starter, then I do have value. So any, any position, that can be a counterfeit God. Um, having enough money or status or reputation, I'll come back to that here in a second. Um, this, one, this one is so insidious, but family. Family can be a counterfeit God. Because see, parents, our children are a gift from God. They didn't come to replace him. If there's anything in you that there's, you fill that hole in your heart with a child, if you think that they somehow will rescue you, somebody already came to rescue you. And it's not junior. Parent, children are a gift from God on loan. They are not a replacement for God. The same can be said of a spouse. Uh, travel, recreation, if, if there's something in you, man, if I can't travel, if I can't have new experiences, life is, life is just boring. Life is just lifeless. And again, it's not a complete list. But as you hear that, can you be honest enough with yourself to identify 
what some of those counterfeit gods might be in your heart. And, and I've told you some of these before, but I'll just give you three things that, that, that Pastor Tim is tempted to replace God with. Number one, success. Success. And, and, and yes, I have a definition of success in my mind, but if I'm successful or I can attach myself to something successful, then I have value. But if I can't or if I'm not successful enough, I don't feel I have as much value. And what I've found is that success is a hungry beast that devours without asking questions. It's not just, it's not just a disappointing God. It's a destructive God. So that's, that's one of the things that I struggle with. Your turn. Nobody? Okay, I'll go again. That's fine. Second counterfeit God for Tim. Comfort. Comfort. I'm tempted to, to find the quickest, easiest route to comfort, whether that's relationally or emotionally or even physically. I want to find comfort. It's like water. Find the lowest level possible as quick as possible. And, and yes, I see the connection between success and comfort. I'm not stupid. Okay? Suffering isn't fun for anyone, but those who worship comfort go to great lengths to keep from suffering. And comfort, like, hear me, comfort in and of itself isn't bad. Comfort is a good thing, but idolatry takes good things and makes them ultimate things. Take comfort, a good thing, and we turn it into God or God-like. Success, comfort, your turn yet? Okay, last one. Number three, reputation. Reputation. I think we all know that it takes years to develop a good reputation. It takes years to, to prove to people that you're trustworthy, you're consistent, you're hardworking. It takes years to build a reputation. And it can take one weekend to lose a reputation. It can take one accusation to lose a reputation. And those of us who struggle with that, there's, there's almost a sense of, okay, if I don't have my reputation, I don't have anything. And here's Jesus going, what am I, chopped liver? Like, you could lose your reputation and still have me and think you don't have anything? Success, comfort, reputation, all good things that can be turned into ultimate things. And here's the crazy part. I could keep going. <laughs> like, those are just the three things that came right to my mind. Those are the three things that immediately I'm tempted to worship. Those are just three. Three of the many things I'm tempted to worship instead of God. And, and I just wonder, because he does to me. I wonder if your Heavenly Father might be whispering to you today, can I be your one and only would you make me your one and only? Re receive all of those things as gifts from me, but don't replace me with them. They're gifts. They're not me. Don't turn them into the ultimate source of meaning or value or significance or security. They will fail you because they're fickle. No other gods. Just personally speaking, um, if I were allowed to choose my means of death, 
burning alive would not make the top 10. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. The furnace is so hot, it kills the soldiers that threw the three into the furnace. Then... King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Neb is dumb to ask that question. It just happened, right? He's dumbstruck. He's, he's astounded. He's gobsmacked. How in the world? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And we have the advantage of hindsight to know it actually was a son of God. Neb approaches the fire, yells for them to come out. They come out. The stage gets really crowded. It's Nebuchadnezzar, the three boys, advisors, governors, treasurers, all the leaders, and they have no burns, Clothing wasn't even singed. Hair isn't scorched. The, the, the ropes that were around them are gone, but they didn't even smell like fire. What is going on? Like, doesn't this sound a little bit unusual? This is, this is what we would call a grade A miracle. That's the theological term for it. <laughs> this, this isn't okay, I lost my car keys. I prayed that Jesus would help me find my car keys and I found my car keys. <laughs> no, no, this is different, okay? This is way different. And, and by the way, I just want you to know, I want you to hear this. I believe this actually happened. I believe this actually happened. I believe God is unlimited in creative power and he often chooses to work through the natural and the normal but he is not limited by the natural and the normal. And he oftentimes, if and when and where he chooses, moves into the supernatural and paranormal. Daniel 3 is one of those times where he moves away from the natural and the normal into the supernatural, the beyond normal. In verse 28, here's our landing spot. Don't miss this. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and here's a really important phrase, were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And they lived happily ever after, right? It's a good story. It's a story that parents told their children who told their children who told their children so this idea would stick to their souls. Sometimes faithfulness will cost you something. It's a great story. It's got a great ending. It's a great lesson to learn. And it would have been a great story if they instantly burned up. It still would have been a great story if God had not rescued them from the flames. That's what, that's what these three boys said. Two of the most critical words in the entire narrative. Even if. 
even if our God is able and willing, we actually expect him to. But even if he doesn't, we still trust him. Two of the most powerful words in all of scripture, I think it's two of the most powerful words in your life, even if. And, and some of you are coming out of a season. Some of you are getting ready to go into a season and you don't even know it yet. And some of you are right smack dab in the middle of a season where you need to pray, God, help me to trust you, even if he's unwilling to see a counselor and sort this out. God, help me to trust you, even if this whole thing falls apart. God, help me to trust you, even if the cancer comes back. God, help me to trust you, even as my daughter continues to drift away from you. Even as my son, my parents continue to drift away from you. God, please help me to trust you, even if this financial downturn becomes a full-on recession. Even if a recession turns into a full-blown depression. Even if. Even if. Even if. And you say, Tim, you're shifting without a clutch. That's not how it happened. Right? God rescued them. And that means he's going to rescue me too. Maybe. He might. I can take you to Hebrews 11 and show you all the people that God rescued, the heroes of our faith, that he did unbelievable things through. And alongside of them are people who were tortured, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, sawed in two, killed by the sword, persecuted, and mistreated. It's the same chapter of faith. And the author of Hebrews says all of them, those who were rescued and those who weren't, none of them, the world wasn't worthy of them. And they were all commended for their faith. When the flames didn't touch them, and when the flames did. Jesus, the night before he was crucified, God, if there's any other way, would you please let this cup pass for me? But even if it doesn't, your will be done. Faithfulness cost Jesus his life. Because sometimes faithfulness costs something. And even when it does, he's still worthy of your worship. He's still worthy of being your one and only. Believe that God can. Expect that he will. Trust him even if he doesn't. Believe that he can. Expect that he will. Trust him even if he doesn't, can we, can we just can we say this together? Just, just repeat this after me. Believe that he can. Expect that he will. Trust him even if he doesn't. One more time. Believe that he can. Expect that he will. Trust him even if he doesn't. Father in heaven, would you impress this on us? For those who are they're 
right in the middle of it right now, for those who are coming out of it, God, for those who don't even know it, but they're getting ready to walk into it. That we know, we believe you can, we look at what you've done in history, we look at what you've done in our lives, we look at what you've promised to do in the future, we believe you can. And, and we want to have the faith that you will. And then we want to take the next step before you do anything and say to you, we'll trust you even if you don't. God, wherever this lands with us, from the youngest to the oldest, would you through your spirit, because of the truth of your word, allow us to leave this place confident because of who you are, because of what you have done, and because of what you've promised to do in the future. We trust you. We believe you can. We expect that you will. And we'll trust you even if you don't. We pray this in the one. I pray this in the one, in the name of the one who who did just that the night before he paid for our sin. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a good week.